Hello. Hey, how's it going? Okay, can you hear me better? I can hear you. Okay, uh, give me a second. I'm currently building a ziggurat. First things first, Bill. Today is the uh, 1st of April. Uh, Today is April Fool's Day. And a Merry Foolsmas to you, Edgar. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Right back at you. Um, so I'm not usually one to indulge in uh, April Fool's tomfoolery because April Fool's Day is a bit kind of naff. It's a bit of a weird concept, particularly in the in the age we currently live in um, with the whole like fake news things and all that sort of jazz. Uh, but uh, this year, I kind of decided to uh, to give it a shot. And what I've done, Bill, is I've created an April Fool's Day thing for the podcast that's kind of at your expense. So uh, I need to describe it to you. And if you give me your blessing, I will post it later on today. Okay? Okay. (laughs) So I've created... Do you know the way everyone loves Bill's laugh? Your laugh, yeah? Okay. I've created a compilation of what I think are your best laughs and made a 10-hour long compilation of Bill laughing. And I've uploaded that. I'm up, currently uploading it on private to the YouTube channel. And I can put it in the feed. Uh, I can't... You can't listen to it because the thing has been processing for like hours because it's so big. Um, uh, you need to kind of trust my description here. <laughs> Would you be okay with an April Fool's Day video where it's 10 hours of you laughing on a loop? Where, where is the bit of this that's at my expense? Well, it's kind of taking the piss out of your laugh. <laughs> Uh, no, it's a tribute to the glory of my life. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, well then, so then you have no problems with it, yeah? No, nah, go for it. Yes! I'm so happy. I'm so happy. It t- it's taken so long to upload. It's just, it's such an incredibly large file. It's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, we'll put it up later tonight. Cool, that's April Fool's. Uh, other thing I want to talk about before we get into follow-up follow up is um, a bit of... Uh, Plugging on my end, my brother is a jazz bassist for anyone who doesn't know, and he is currently in the middle of uh, recording his first solo EP. Um, oh, cool! As as a, as a composer, I guess, because he's writing the music for um, a huge ensemble. Like he's writing music for all loads of different instruments, um, and the work is called Ex Ovo Omnia. Uh, it's a four track EP. Uh, features yeah like a sixteen piece ensemble for the uh, for most of the tunes I think and it's this sort of jazz fusion type thing um, and it combines cool. like rock and metal and jazz and Latin and it's real like I think it's real like avant garde eclectic jazz music uh, and I bring this up to say that uh, he is um, has it on Indiegogo at the moment and he's trying to look for funds to complete it because he's ran out of cash because paying musicians is horrifically expensive um and i said i helped him record some promotional videos for the thing and i was like look i'll throw it on the podcast and see if anyone would uh, would have a look at, and help you out because i'd really like if if you could see it to completion um so I'll ah, put, there he I'll, is what's again sorry i'm just looking at his website now i haven't seen him in ages <laughs> um yeah go to go to his indiegogo page if that's on or go to his youtube channel it's linked in the, in the show notes um so the yeah so i'm going to put the indiegogo page in the show notes um if if you can't if you can support and you like jazz music please do that would mean a lot to him and i um if you can't uh just listen to the first track off the ep a, a track called patron it's on youtube it's available for free um have a gander to that in fact what i might even do if it's okay with bill i might put that track at the end of this podcast just let it play out at the very end 
um, so people can have a listen. Um, so yeah, yeah, just fine with me. Just a plug. If it's fine with with your brother. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's fine with that. Yeah, he, he was like, you can use whatever you want. Um, cool. So just a plug there for uh, for my brother. Yeah. So XO Omnia, go check him out. And also, you can go see what my brother looks like and what he sounds like. I've, some of the patrons, uh, I showed them the promotional video, and they were like, "Oh my god, it's it's Edgar 2.0. It sounds so much like you." And there were there was a little running joke in the Discord. Uh, where it was like, how about you get him to replace you on the podcast and just don't tell anyone? No one will ever know. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was quite fun. So go go check out the Indiegogo page of the YouTube and all that sort of jazz. Yep. Say you got a haircut or something, or you got a new hairstyle, and get him to do a vlog, and and don't 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 like and don't ever do it again, and don't bring it up afterwards. Yeah, I'd need to grow my hair fairly long, and I'd need to uh, uh, a bit of grow a bit of a goatee, and also we're very different in body shape like i'm really thin and he's uh more rounded more rotund some might say so we visually we have a lot to go to get to say but if you close your eyes uh, apparently we're identical uh, but yeah so yeah go check it out everyone uh we got an email here from uh yog yog mike future um, yes great name who says hey just found out that you're a music theorist uh will you be looking at world building and new music theory for a world looking at creating new scales time signatures and traditions um and kind of questions along along that line Mm -hmm. um i have touched on this before on my actually on my music blog um which is pretty much defunct now i haven't really written anything in it on it for about three years but the last thing i wrote was intended to be the first in a series of posts about world building music um so check out the first one that i've, I've written there um <laughs> which examines the kind of the social context of music and how to think about those in a world building setting or some frameworks that you could use to think about that um i kind of stalled writing the second one which is going to be a more theoretical approach um because I would like to go from the start with things, and there's a very, very big topic to to tackle and do justice to, and then I just that was years ago, and I just haven't gotten around to it since. Um, but what I would say is, examine your assumptions about music, including about the the theory. Um, like one of the things, the question here is phrased as looking at creating new scales, time signatures, and traditions. Time signatures is only really a, a coherent concept within Western music. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're talking about world building music, look at why you're talking about time signatures, because that's not a, a, a thing in the same way in Indian music or in Japanese music or in, in anything else. Um, so, I mean, by all means, look at, look at how you're thinking about time and how you're thinking about rhythm and tempo, but time signatures is a very specific kind of phrase. Um, that would be my main thing is question your assumptions and look at other musics around the world for, for inspiration and ideas of how you can do things differently. And looking at that can show what our assumptions are like one, one of the things that, that he says here in, in this is octaves are a given which is broadly true but I think in 
I think in Maori music, in in like uh, traditional New Zealand music, um, they they tend to use a pitch range that's much smaller than that. So octaves don't even come into it. Yeah, but 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 surely they would they would transpose like high low notes. You know, like even if you have a pitch range that's like a fifth in space, say. If you sing a high root, that's then an octave by default. What do you mean a high root? As in, like, if 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 say you had do re mi fa so uh, as right. your kind of range, like that small range. Um, yeah. Singing a high do gives you octaves. Like octaves must naturally. But happen. they don't know. But they they the instruments that they're 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 using. This this is based on a lecture I I went to given by a. a a composer from New Zealand. Oh, the instruments don't have that range. They they have a range huh. of a fourth or a fifth or something, and it's microtonal within that. And they don't use multiple voices. So interesting. Like oh, doing cool. it up an octave doesn't come into it. Now I may be misrepresenting that. I may be misrepresenting that, and I'm not trying to be a, a an expert on Maori music. I'm not claiming that. But even if that's untrue, there is an example, a potential example of. Uh, a music system that doesn't rely on octaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, my, my opinion on this is that I think uh, world building. Uh, we talked about this ages ago during a Star Trek, uh, a Star Wars special um, mm-hmm. about world building music. Uh, I still hold the belief that theoretical uh, music world building is kind of too esoteric to be functionally useful. Um, unless, of course, you just, from an academic perspective, you're interested in, in interrogating music and like, yeah. remixing it but in terms of like a story like i can never see you know time signatures making their way into a story um mm-hmm. you know like no one's ever gonna say like oh i i went to this uh strange foreign land and they played music in 10 10 8 or, or something like that like at, at best to be all like you know i went to a strange foreign land and their musics were uh alien to my ears or something like that you know uh less kind of theoretical and more just uh world 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 painting like coloring a world um and i think it's it's easier to world build in terms of like different instruments you know um that's especially with visual world building uh that's that's a lot more um productive than i think reworking the theoretical underpinning of music um mm-hmm. but again i think we said this before in the past i think it's because we both study music that we are reluctant to uh, delve into it so much and you mentioned at the start there where it's just like without coming across being braggy we know like too much about it <laughs> and we're all like we need to go back to the very beginning and rework the entire system and it's not just a case of being all like I'm gonna m- mess with the number of notes in a scale or something like that. it's like no the whole thing needs to be redone and that's the thing that I just think hardly anyone is interested in Mm-hmm. The, uh, oh, uh, plugs for some YouTube channels here that you, if you are interested in kind of like the more trippy nature of music and maybe messing with things, um, there's a YouTube channel called Twelve Tone, uh, which goes through the music theory behind various uh, pop songs uh, and sometimes gets way more avant-garde and goes into like hardcore music theory and explains that in a real neat way. Yeah, his, music, his videos are very good. They're very, very good. And the other person is Adam Neely, which loads of people... Uh, in the sub I know watch anyways but uh, he very often will do uh, music explaining videos where he explains the concepts of music and uh, him questioning the subject matter is off could could be um, a good starting point for 
coming up with your own systems. So should, those being the show notes, you should go check two of them out. Um, I'm going to add to that. Oh. Uh, there's a good uh, channel called Early Music Sources, which now it's very based in Western music because it's about kind of uh, Renaissance through Baroque music. Mm. But even even then, that is quite different and things were conceived quite differently to, to modern Western music. Um, so looking at that and looking at how they dealt with things can be quite interesting from a world-building point of view. Links in the show notes. I'm going to push back on that a little bit, Bill. Uh, I, mm-hmm. think, I think that early music, uh, so early music for anyone, that's like, oh yeah, you said it, like Renaissance music, that sort of thing. I think early music is is much more similar to modern day contemporary classical music than it is to say like Mozart and things like that. Um, because I remember my teacher in college being like, you'd be surprised at the amount of people who have an affinity towards very early music and very contemporary music, but struggle. Uh, I, and I was one of these people, but struggle in the middle with like classical and romantic because the two of them kind of, uh, a lot of the same sort of um, interpretive tools can be applied to those two styles. So for me, anyways, they're always very, very, very similar, like high-end contemporary music and then like, you know, barred music from the Renaissance. Yeah, um, there's an element of truth to that, but also early music is so broad that there's a lot of different things sure. going on. So I don't think it, it holds up necessarily. And the social context of it is is one of the things that's very, very different. Sure, yeah, yeah. That, um, that's a down to fair, yeah. Uh, but and also it's it's that's a really funny channel like it's it's uh it's it, a lot of people would see that as quite dry subject matter and it, it's full of memes the videos are and like animations and just like slightly weird humor so it's kind of fun oh speaking of which we need to move on from this email in a second because i'll be here all day but uh, i've discovered this really fun channel it's 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 an irish uh, fella as far as i know um and what he does is he critiques music notation software but does so in a really like hyper dramatic super anal meme sort of way and it's okay. hysterical like he tore he tore Sibelius a new one recently and it's just it's just brilliant Sibelius for anyone it's a musical notation software and it's just yeah it's a it's a musical guy who's into design complaining about this like uh, horrifically designed software that he has to use all the time to write his music and it's just it, it starts off normal and descends into madness. It's brilliant. I'll link it in the show notes. Cool. Um, so yeah, next email. The next email is from Josenkeep, who's a fairly regular contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the subject is the viability of a gas torus. I've been trying to construct a star system that contains a stable gas torus, somewhat similar to the setting of The Integral Trees by Larry Niven. Okay, I haven't read that. Nor have I, yeah. Um, the idea is that this gas torus would somewhat obscure the stars, and if the ecliptic plane is parallel to the galactic plane, it would almost look like a continuation of the galaxy from the night sky to the day sky. Um, that part, I just on that part. So first of all, the stability of a gas torus, like, you know, it's really torus planets aren't all that stable. Um, I remember saying that they were stable in my Taurus Planet video, but that's like mathematically stable. Like in the real world, um, they're not they're not going to happen. So the notion of a gas Taurus also being mathematically stable is um, is just yeah, it's just not going to happen. Because if you think about it, if you 
if you take like uh, a a uh, ball of material and spin it really fast, it'll flatten out and it can it can stretch itself into a, a torus um, by rotational speed. Um, that rotation speed is really really quick and it's going to be quicker. Uh, it's going to be so quick that it's just going to eject all the uh, the particles, all the hydrogen and helium because they're so light. So it's just not going to happen. Uh, and it's not going to be geologically stable whatsoever. And also the continuation... Sorry, I don't mean to like uh, crap all over your idea here, but the continuation of the ga- it being a continuation of the galaxy, I don't see how that would happen. Do you know? Like if you looked in the sky and you saw a gas torus... Even if it was very close, like you were a moon of this gas horse. I don't see how that would look like background galaxy at all. Um, that bit kind of, I, I'm, I wonder about that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure where the, where the observer is observing from. In, yeah, but, in that. but I think from any point of observation, it doesn't work. Because if so, imagine if we replace Jupiter with a gas Taurus. We wouldn't, yeah. see, we wouldn't see it. Or, but if we replace, if we're on the moon and we replace Earth with a gas torus, we're it. It just wouldn't look like the background galaxy at all. And I don't think there's a point in between those two distances whereby it would look like the background galaxy. It's just they're two entirely different things. Maybe culturally, mm-hmm. as in people would look at it and they kind of that would be the symbolism they give that. But like um, physically, not at all. Hmm. Uh, but then again, magic. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, Joseph Keep goes on to outline uh, two ways in which they uh, think that the gas torus could be stable, or at least stable to some degree. And, I mean, they're all... The stuff they mentioned, just really quickly, is um, is fine. They're all, like, correct scientific things. It's just, just the notion of a gas torus is so out there. It's just not... It's not going to happen. You're not in the realms of science anymore. You're in the realms of fantasy. So I think you need to uh, ditch the uh, having to justify it with science. Um, is my idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Cool. Uh, next email? The next email is another from... another Edgar, Edgar one. Okay, hold on. It's a, another It's another Edgar one. Um uh, no, we got, we got didn't get this through the usual form, so I hope we can um, use the the first name here. Yeah, we'll use first name. That's that's anonymous enough. Uh, but we're going to butcher it, so let's do Ashilder. No, Ashilder. Yeah, Ashilder. I'm sure. Ashilder. It's probably got that that really nice uh, Icelandic or at the end that I can't do Ashilder. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Ashilder wrote in uh, with. They did a little bit of conlanging uh, around the AVOX from Hunger Games. This has been a recurring feature of the Artifacting podcast. Um, the uh, There are a group of people in the Hunger Games stories that had their tongues cut out, if I remember correctly. Yes? Yeah, as a punishment for uh, treason or uh, sedition or something. Uh, and we, sp- I think you speculated as to how that language would work, how they would speak. Um, did, and, did they have a language in the series, or we were we were we just speculating that they could come up with a language to uh, subvert their punishment? So I recently watched the films, and there's no mention of it in the films, as far as I remember. Uh, and, and, and in the films, they it, like the person who's an Avox makes like a an appearance for like two two minutes. That's it. Um, right. But in the books, and I haven't read them. Maybe there is something. Uh, I suspect we were speculating. Um, yeah, I, th- I think so. Mm-hmm. But in any case, uh, they uh, they have a shielder has um, 
gone through the various sounds uh, that are available to humans and kind of selected the ones that require minimal tongue movement and uh, modified and made up some words um, that uh, may be present in such an AVOX language. So really quickly, I just wanted to read out a sentence. Uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but I'll, I'll try and do it. Um, I'm going to read, I want to murder banana. Okay. Also, <laughs> that's a sentence. So uh, that would be, am wamp mua bamama. So if again, if someone wants to slow that down or something, you can hear that everything is with the lips and they're very low vowels. Um, so I think it could kind of work. Uh, I would imagine someone who actually lost their tongue would lose an awful lot of the distinction in those sounds because even though, like, you know, b sound doesn't really use a tongue, it's still being used to shape the airflow to some degree. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think that would be how it sounds like, but I, th I think it could work. Um, so yeah, there we go. Ama, oh, sorry. Am, womp, mua, bamama. Yes. Title of the podcast. <laughs> Excellent. The first the, the first time we've we've uh oh no it's not the first time we we've named something in 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 another language. Uh, oh, piss cod wibbly wobbly. Piss cod wibbly wobbly. Yes, yeah. octopodes. Um, I just I just wanted to to say uh, to Ashley dear I really liked this, mm -hmm. um, and I really liked the way. Like the, the sounds were chosen, and yeah, I thought it was really good. And as as well, another thing I really like is uh, is that at this they give a sample vo uh, vocabulary, and at the start mm -hmm. it's it's modified English, right? So like father, for example, is fava, uh, with with an aspirated f, I, ca I can't do it. So fava, uh, and then mother is mava. Uh, and then I was like, oh, I see what they're doing. They're just replacing the English sounds with their nearest counterpart in this language. But then as you go through it, they become increasingly more um, alien or, or increasingly uh, they depart from English. And so it makes it sound almost like it's it's this language might be a pigeon or a creole um, in that there's elements still of English in there, but it's developing into its own thing. And I think that's, uh, I'm completely reading that into it, uh, but I think that's a cool thing to be able to read into just this little tiny sample vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, top-notch work. Well done. Okay, the next email uh, is, oh, this this was one um, I was going to answer. So it's from Dan M. Dan M. Just a quick question, uh, a term that I mentioned on a recent episode uh, about the type of world building that I do, where information is only revealed by documents that would be available to someone who lives in the universe being discussed. So, what, and what was that term? So, I, I don't know if this is a, a term used by anyone else. There may be a, a better uh, way to express it, but I, th I think, I, think I, I did see this somewhere else. I don't, I don't think this was my term. And the, anyway, the term was diegetic world building. Diegetic world building. Yes. And AKA endlessly frustrating to your co-host. <laughs> That's my aesthetic. Um, the, the, I originally came across the term diegetic in um, relation to film. 
mm-hmm. where diegetic and non-diegetic sound is a thing in film studies. So d- diegetic sound is something that is happening within the film. So if you go to, if the, the characters go to a concert and there is music playing, then that music is diegetic music. But if there's a fight scene and there is just soundtrack music happening over the fight scene that the characters cannot hear, that is non-diegetic sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I remember now, the reason that I, I thought of this in relation to world building was a little while ago, um, I saw someone talking about it in relation to maps within video games. So, you know, if you just, like, hit the map button and this, you know, big interactive map comes up with labels and things that your character wouldn't actually have, then that would be a non-diegetic map. But if your character takes a map out of their pocket and unfolds it and looks at it that way, and it's like their actual map, then that would be a diegetic map. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I remember you, you saying that before, actually. Um, I think that was the example you gave before. So, uh, yeah, diegetic world building. Diegetic um, world building. Cool. And a final email on my end, if you're good to proceed. Yep. Is uh, we got an email from Ali Hobbaker. Um, they say that they uh, we can use both names. So I will do so. Ali Hobbaker, um, who I don't believe has emailed the show before. So uh, welcome. Um, they are saying that they are fairly new to Artifexian. Again, welcome. Uh, and they, they really liked stuff. I uh, recently watched my TEDx talk and liked this whole like maths and logic uh, and how that leads to realism and all that sort of jazz. Um, they ask, uh, where with all the equations I use, where do I get the numbers from? Because like, they were like, when you were talking about Tatooine in your TEDx talk, um, you, uh, you use the numbers that are stated on Wikipedia or, you know, that are canonical. But if you're just world building, where do you get the numbers from? And I suppose the very simple answer to this question is that some numbers you invent, others you generate. Um, so like in the example of building a planet where uh, mass, radius, gravity and density are all linked. Um, they're all proportional to one another. You'd inv- you could invent two of them and uh, derive the other two, um, which is more realistic than just inventing four of them that make no sense uh, whatsoever. Um, so... Pick which ones you want to invent. Pick one. Pick the things you really want. Like you really want a low gravity world. Just make it whatever and derive the others. Um, and then uh, they also say like, is everything based off Earth size? And I want just want to reiterate this again. I've said it loads of times in the past, but it's worth doing again. Uh, I don't use units in most of my world building. Uh, it's all proportional sort of stuff. So I don't say like, oh, a planet is you know twenty eight point four times ten to the 30 kilograms because that's meaningless like we don't have that's so beyond their scope to visualize whereas if i say uh, a planet has a mass of one uh with respect to earth's mass so it's the same as earth one times the mass of earth that's that is visually that visually meaningful to us you know if i say a planet has three times the mass of earth you're immediately thinking like it's a really big planet um so all of the numbers uh for the most part i use are proportional units they're always it respect to something else you know be it the sun or be it the earth or whatever uh, and at the very start i was very bad at telling you what it's re- what it's proportional to uh, i would just give plain old numbers uh, and that was terrible i've gotten better with it over uh, over time um so yeah i hope that answers your questions and yeah just want to put it out there again for others as well who may be confused proportional units and then invent some numbers derive the others 
in a stunning turn of events, folks, uh, Bill does not have a piece of prose for us today, which can mean but one thing. He has a map. It's true. <laughs> so, it's true. It's been a while since I've made a map. It has been a while. So there's no, no reading uh, involved here. Uh, go to the show notes. Uh, check out the map on Bill's blog. Um, Bill. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to use this as an opportunity to maybe do a retrospective on your work in romance. Um, so, okay. so co- would you be up for maybe going through some of the locations that we've we've heard before in your work and being all like, here's where that is, this is what occurred there, and move along the map. So that means I think everyone will be able to be like, yes, we get romance. Sure. Cool. Sure. Before, before, um, before, before you do that, before you do that. Um, I want to really quickly compliment you on the map. Um, Thank you. Because it does a thing that uh, very often people fail to do in that it it hints at a much, much wider world. Um, Like the map takes up nearly the entire paper. It's not the shape of the paper. Like it's not a square blob on a square sheet of paper. Um, And it doesn't seem like this is uh, a poorly constructed world map. This seems like it's a section of a much greater unexplored world, and that in and of itself tells a great story, and I really like that. Um, yeah, so there you go. That was my uh, my thing. Hmm. Well, thank you very much. No problem. Um, right, let's, so let's do a tour. <laughs> so this, as Edgar said, is a map um, of a part of the planet I've been calling Romance. Mm. So that is the... That is one of the planets in the Handwavia system. Mm-hmm. I think it's the fifth planet. Yeah, sure. Is the desert? It's the fourth or the fifth planet. Okay. Um. Yeah, it's the fifth. I'm just remember, yeah. Um. I was just remembering there, and it is uh, human inhabited, and it has a much lower gravity than than Earth. Like we can we can link the the details sure. of the of of the the planet in the in the show notes mm-hmm. cool um and the reason that it has a lower gravity is because i want to kind of invoke the the planetary romance genre which is the, the main example would be john carter of mars mm-hmm. by edgar rice burroughs uh there's a few other ones robert howard wrote one as well and one of the common things in this genre is that a person from Earth gets transported to another planet or another place where gravity is much lower. And because of their mighty Earth muscles from fighting against Earth gravity, they're really strong in comparison. So they can jump really far and they can fight big monsters. And I built on that. And this is the this has all of the places that I've, I've created within romance so far. And I've added a couple more. Although, to be fair, I don't think you've wielded this this aspect of planetary romance at all in your writings about romance. Um, I haven't done the the big strong Earthman kind of thing, no. But that's just that was the that was just the the germ of the setting. Okay, do you intend on doing this? Um, potentially, potentially. Those those intergalactic uh, Bene traders, yeah. Which the subreddit from last month? No. We were speculating, and I was like, I said, I guess it's something to the effect of those pesky intergalactic Bene traders, uh, about because we're talking about cross pollination of your worlds. Um, never mind, man, it's fine. If you need to explain a joke, it's not funny anymore. Let's crack on. Um, 
Well, they, they would just be interplanetary because they're all from the same system. Yes, yeah, sorry, interplanetary. Yes, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, anyhow, uh, oh, sorry, um, sorry. Before the tour again, uh, anyway. can you explain to me what? Why are some places in red and some places in black? Like, I get that the ones underlined seem to be the names of regions, but what's the distinction between there? Is it big? Is it city and town, or what's the crack? Okay, so you're not quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, the red cities are uh, the cities that are known as spires mm. by outsiders. I've mentioned that before. Yes. Um, so that's their, they'd be the kind of the five principal cities of that. They're not, it's not a country exactly, but it is a sort of a, a cultural alliance. Mm-hmm. Imagine, um, imagine Greek city-states. They right. were at war with each other, but they were all Greek. And they were a distinct thing that outsiders were not. Right, yeah, cool, that makes sense. And so then the black the black cities are just lesser cities. They're just other cities. They're so just, there's okay. there's only there's only three other actual cities here, um, across the the south here we've got Athens, Hene, and Ebwar. Okay. And then the the black uh, underlined regions are just kind of lands or provinces. Did you not say that the, that Hoi Tan was a peninsula? Maybe. Yeah. It's an island in your map, man. <laughs> I have absolutely no memory of saying that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was the Hoi Tan Peninsula. Uh, yeah, I don't know, whatever. Sure, it looks, whoever's doing the cartography is not great at their jobs in that case. Um, or maybe maybe whoever said it was a peninsula was wrong. Oh, but that's, that's fair. Or maybe uh, it's just known as a peninsula for weird cultural reasons when it's actually not. Yeah, maybe it used to be. Maybe it used to be. Or maybe there's like a big bridge and so they're all like, it's a peninsula now. Potentially. Potentially. <laughs> okay, so do you wanna do you wanna start maybe let's let's start with uh top left, right? Um do you wanna talk no. us No? What I'm actually gonna do is I'm gonna go through it in order of the oh. stories that I've written. Chronological order. What a boss. Look at that. Travels the world, comes back, has more than more work done than, <laughs> than we ever thought was happening. Bill, I'm gonna sit back, you just tell me stories, okay? <laughs> right, so the very first thing that I wrote um, set in romance was from the point of view of the uh, sort of mercenary naval captain, uh, well, lieutenant, not captain, sorry, the mercenary naval officer, Yarthen Te Yarthen. And he served aboard the ship Aspire of the Tamar Company. Um, He was from the city of Myrsphir. Mere sphere, so that is that which. Is, if you look at the three cities in red at the top there, mm-hmm. that is the middle one. Okay, cool. Here's from Mere Sphere. Here's from Mere Sphere. Um, now the Tamar Company is actually, uh, I think, f- not based in Mere Sphere originally, but they they have um, they have places in all of the cities of the Spires culture. Um, he mentions being somewhere on the, the far side of the Usin belt, which is yes. the the mountain range you can see there. Uh, now, only a section of it is actually named as the Usin belt, but it, it stretches pretty much from the uh, the Selin Lake there in the northwest, and it kind of runs roughly towards the southeast, and it stops being considered the Usin belt around the Lusalle Valley. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, 
of the the other places that he he mentions, he mentions there being a battle over the Selen Lake. Yes. Which is visible there in, in the top left. And the Usin province is on the the Mearsphere side of the Usin belt. So kind of between that uh that bit of, of mountain stretching east and the river south of that. That's called the Usin province. Cool. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so I think that's the that's all of the places specified in the in the first one in cool. Yarshen's letter. Uh, the second one, the second letter that I wrote, was written by uh, Vistan, and it was recounting the it was recounting Yarshen's story from the other point of view, and then what happened to them afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um. So he Yar, um Vistan was he encountered the Aspire somewhere on the far side of the Usen Belt, so on the, the southern side there, and he was cast out, and the crew had to hike overland for several days to reach the river um, Agba, I think it was called. Abga, sorry, the river Abga. Oh, and where, where is that on the map? So that is that is the, the big river there. See, like, the, the three rivers that start south of the Selen Lake? Yes. And then it's, it, that runs south and is joined by a tributary from the east. Yeah, and they end up uh, going to, to, into the sea at Atien. At Atien, yeah. Cool. So yep. that's that's the that's the Abga, um, the one that runs n- like kind of north to south, not the not the tributary coming from the east. Um, so it was somewhere along there that that he was um, that that the uh, the Senan his vessel was taken by the Aspire. And on that river, he encountered the Earthhand River traders that were heading downriver to Atien. Yes, yes, uh, class, cool, yeah, yeah, man. This is this is a real uh, trip trip every day because you know where you re- <laughs> we release one of these like every month. So like, yeah. you've written like five or six of these. So this is literally a half, uh, like recounting the last like half year in my life. It's great, love it. I suppose it is, yeah. And he mentions that. When Vistan mentions when he gets to Atien, he's going to travel from there to Mirsphere, to Lansk, and to Otvev. Uh, and these are, you can see those other cities of the spires there. Because yeah. he knows that's the, the you know, the, the Tamar Company are spires, kind of uh, a spires organization. So he's going to travel through all of those cities looking for their vessel and looking for the relic that was inside it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third one that I wrote was a Year's Rise Revel. A, a fan favourite. And one of mine too. I really enjoyed that one. <laughs> uh, so you can see Otvev in the... It's the north eastmost of the, the Spires cities. Um, yeah. They're near the um, Atramia Peninsula. Um, it's just kind of a, a sort of a gulf where the river leads into the sea and Otvev is at the, is at the mouth of the river. Um, and in Otvev... That's where Daishag Tashansha was recuperating from an illness uh, during the, the winter period. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, well, there's, there's not that much extra mentioned there. Uh, he says that the, he was entertained by a troop of acrobat players from somewhere to the far south of Anchez. Far south of Anchez. Oh, so Anchez is that middle region. Anchez is that middle region there, yeah. It's it's bordered by um, mountains, kind of on all sides. 
Yeah. Um, uh, it's that's a very high, uh, very arid plain. Uh, the Tibetan plateau of your world. Uh, not quite as high as that, and not quite as mountainous. Once you're inside it, right? Okay. Um, it's kind of surrounded by mountains, and itself is very, very high. Okay. Um, but it's it's itself is quite flat. Okay. Cool. Um, uh, and he also mentions a temple in Anshes or a, a Hoitan chief. So there is like foreign places or places outside of his own his own culture. Yeah, and the um, Hoitan being the Peninsula Island thing. The island to the Far East there, yep. yeah. Cool. And finally, the last one we had was a death in Ebwar. Yes. And Ebwar is, you can see here, quite far south, um, kind of on the same uh, latitude as Athien. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a bit further inland. And this is where the Neosphere licensed prospector Oskin Te Ater was mysteriously killed, and he he also had previously worked in the mines of of Anches. but as you can see, it's Ebwar is further further south than the Anches. And is there meant to be a city called Anches? Because I only see a region called Anches. No, there's not a city. No, it's a region. Oh, it's just a region. Okay, so all right. Okay, grand. Cool. Um, cool. Very good. And that was so. That was the final installment. The Ebwar thing, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I think I wrote four in total. Oh, so that means you have a heap of cities here that that aren't mentioned at all. Uh, Henai or Hena, um, Hene, Lansk, Vilv, uh, and then I can't yeah. read that top one. Z- Z- oh no, I, I mentioned Lansk in the did, second letter. Sorry, yes, you mentioned Lansk, but we didn't mention Vilv, and you didn't mention Z- Zikav. 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 Um. Are they? Have you placed them here to tease us, or are they potential locations for? Have you thought of stories already, and they're forthcoming? Um, not specifically. I, I haven't thought specifically of stories, but they're, as I said, and as you can see on the map, they're broadly, um, they're part of the spires as well. Mm. So that that sort of cultural complex. Um, Vilv Vilv looks like either Lake Town, or. Uh, the twins in Game of Thrones is it? Where it's kind of it's at the confluence <laughs> of like two rivers and the big lake there, and I think that that that's kind of cool. I want I would like to hear a story from there. It's it's a short distance. It's not quite on the lake. It's a short distance away. Okay. Oh yeah, you kind of have that to point out. Yeah. Cool. I I have I have three questions. Yeah. Um. Is there a capital? And if not a formal capital, like what is the biggest city in this region? Uh. I would say, I would say, uh, Otvev or Zhikav would be the biggest. Oh, that's 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 interesting to have the biggest be stuck there away from things. Cause I get Otvev because it has uh, access to uh, what looks like a real good port area, but Zhikav mm-hmm. looks like it's out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Sorry, Zhikav uh, looks like it's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so that's cool. Uh, second question. Mm-hmm. Uh, scale. Uh, what mm-hmm. what sort of distances are involved here? I'm trying to figure that out exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a number of days travel between any of the the spires cities by airship. So we're we're definitely talking in hundreds of miles, many and, hundreds of miles. And do your do your airships go at the same speed as like um like airships here, like hot air balloons here? 
uh, no, they'd be faster than hot air balloons. They'd, they'd be like... Like the Hindenburg. Uh, not quite as fast as that. Right, okay, so, so somewhere between the, the limits of hot air balloon and the Hindenburg. Yeah, I mean, the, the Hindenburg um, could cover 4,000 miles in four days. A thousand miles in four days. That is shocking. You know what else is shocking? No, no. The fact that you quoted that in 4,000 miles. Miles. In four days. Miles. Like, why Why with the miles, man? Because <laughs> uh, its first its first commercial voyage was from Frankfurt to Rio de Janeiro, I think. Wait. And it did it in four days. No, yeah, no, no, yeah, no. I was, I was complaining about the miles. <laughs> Never mind. I know, but I just chose not to engage. Uh, and, and so, final third question I have is: uh, What's the location of this uh, in terms of like uh, relative to the equator? What latitudes are we looking at? Um, or this put, would put, be put, put another way: What what sort of biomes are we looking at? Um, you're you're starting to get taiga just at the north edge of the map. Oh. Yeah, so it's it's nor it's north enough. It's fairly north. Okay. Um like all all of the spires definitely have um snow in winter. Right. Okay. And and when we get down to Atien, are we looking at a temperate climate or are we still kind of very cold? Um I'm thinking it's more temperate. Okay, grand. Okay. Maybe cool. not quite Mediterranean. Oh right. Okay, so perhaps so for well, I suppose it depends on the size of the planet. Like, but like, uh, would it be fair to say maybe uh, the top of your map there, like uh, where Atviev is, uh, you could think of that as being like the top of Russia, and then not, not the top of Russia, no. Right, but hang on, but just for distance involved here. So uh, uh, Atviev, top of Russia, and then Athien be bottom of Russia because I'm pretty sure if you drew a line on uh, from Russia's most southern point, it would intersect the Mediterranean or be very close to doing so. Well, let's let's look at uh, uh, Google Maps and Google find out. Google Maps. Let's have a look. Oh, and while you're doing that, your names strike me as being very Russian or uh, very Slavic in intent, uh, particularly yeah. like Atiev. Um, is that a deliberate thing, or do you have some sort of? Yeah, you have an affinity towards it. So your 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 um, one of your user handles on on, a, on your social medias used to be Slav Slavic, I think. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> Hen, on what media? On on your Facebook, you had your name written in Russian script. No, I had I had a name in in Greek script. Oh, was it Greek? I say I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not great with orthography. Sorry, my bad. But uh, regardless, what is the um, motivation for being kind of Russian inspired? Just as a new sound world to have. To be honest, there's nothing nothing yeah. more than that. Yeah, because it's quite it is quite unique. Like uh, most people tend to err on the side of like uh, make it sound like it's a place in the UK or make it sound like it's somewhere in Scandinavia. Um, mm-hmm. So it, that is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. So the bottom of Russia, the the very southernmost point, um, is well, like it has a border with Turkey. So. Yeah, exactly. So it is quite Mediterranean. So yeah, I suppose you, yeah, looking at the map here, top of Russia is a bit extreme. Um, but either way, polar or taiga to to temper perhaps. Um, cool. And then the, uh, sorry, one more question popped in my head: Is the orientation of this map north south? Not exactly, but m- m- pretty much. Yeah. Okay. 
Cool. Uh, north is like maybe 11 o'clock. North is maybe 11 o'clock. All right. Cool. And so, yeah, the unexplored things at the top there is, is north. Awesome, man. That's really yeah. great. Now, I, I'm going to add a little more detail before uploading. There's, there's a few more places where I want to put mountains and things. I, I probably won't name any, any more regions. Sure. Um, and a, a lot of this isn't very inhabited. Like, between Atien and the Usen Belt, there's not very much. There are small towns, and there's, like, logging and stuff. But it's it's not greatly explored. Bill, um, Bill, yeah? I have an idea. If, Go if, ahead. If you continue to write in romance, I'm assuming you're going to continue inventing places. So would it be possible, either on your blog or... Or I'm thinking probably on the podcast website would be easier to keep an up-to-date map, so that no matter when people look at the map, they will it will always have all the places. I'd be more than willing to go in there and Photoshop in place names and just re-upload to the website, um, okay. and have like a permanent link that people can just always be all like, "I wonder what I wonder what romance looks like now." Click, and you're like, "Oh, it's really expanded. That's really cool." Potentially. That sounds. I th- I would. I think that's the thing we should. We should. We should consider. Uh, okay. But yeah. So overall, man, class, love it. Thank you. The rivers are being well behaved. It's the main thing. I. I actually, like I. I looked at bits of the real world to get realistic feeling, um, mountains and and rivers for this. So. Yeah, it works. It works really well. Uh, nothing kind of looks silly and I, I think that what I said at the very start really helps with that like it looks like it's a zoomed in portion of a much bigger world and that really makes it feel very real um, mm-hmm. and the scale even though there is, there is no scale there's something kind of there's an inherent sort of like intrinsic scale to it that you can kind of see and I think that really helps um, yeah do you have any final points on it? there is one place that we haven't discussed at all oh Vicol uh there is still one place my my previous statement was a was a mistake that we haven't discussed at all um which is somewhat relevant to the the overall plot oh oh as in oh as in like that's that's a teaser no just like uh, I, there's a place mentioned on the map here there's a place listed that will be that that has a relevance to stuff we've we've talked about in romance before hen henai no. Nalma? No, I mentioned Nalmia. Nalmia. What do, huh, okay. What am I not seeing? Anyhow, anyhow sure, we'll, we'll leave it to be to be revealed later. Cool. <laughs> all right. Shall we crack on? Let's crack on. Uh, links in the show notes, uh, all the usual places, folks. Go, ch- go check it out. Um, okay. So it's been an absolute age because you were traveling since I released mm-hmm. a video. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't... I wasn't able to publish the next video before this podcast. It is it is ready to go up uh, either tonight or tomorrow morning. But um, once not... once you get the ten hours up, once I get the... oh, is that ten hours thing still there? Hold on, is that still loading? It's been loading for age. It's still loading. Oh, that means it's been loading for like four four hours. I hope <laughs> YouTube didn't flag that and be all like, "This is a suspicious looking bit of content." Um, because that would be terrible. Anywho, anywho, 
Uh, worst case scenario, it'll be in the podcast feed because that's way easier to do. Uh, so yeah, in anyway, regards to this month, yeah, I didn't, uh, there's been no video. The video is coming out on Tuesday or Wednesday, so that is the 2nd or the 3rd of April. We're recording this on uh, the 1st of April, April Fool's Day. Um, so I have no content to speak about. So in lieu of that, I would like to talk about a music theory uh, that I have that is kind of okay. loose, loosely based on what came up in the last show. Uh, if you're willing to hear it, hear me out, yeah? Yeah. All right. So remember I, we talked about Steven Universe last time and uh, uh, someone wrote in and were like, it, the music's very interesting. Each of the characters has their own instrument and that's cool. And I was like, that is cool. That's really brilliant. Uh, and then I made a comment about how popular music and like film music um, t- t- tend to, these cool, these things that we think are cool in it uh, tend to be rather rudimentary um in terms of like the composition that i i would have taken in in college um and huzzah the ever foods video just uploaded 10 hours and one second <laughs> um so uh people were talking to me in the subreddit about this and uh were kind of getting me to clarify my clarify my opinions on this and um i think my sort of uh, summarized statement of the whole thing is that it's not that I think that popular music and film music and that is like lesser or anything like that. It's more that there is this wealth of stuff in the avant-garde that it do, that does trickle down into pop and film and stuff. But the rate of trickle down, I always I'm always bemused by like how slow it is. Um, so not that the two worlds don't mix and not that the stuff that like yeah not that they don't combine in ways but they just don't combine very readily um and uh, people say like oh this is really brilliant I'm kind of like oh but there's all this stuff over in the avant-garde anyway so that was my point uh to kind of sort of highlight this in a sort of very loose way uh i want to talk about why the musical hamilton is the modern a modern day jupiter symphony by mozart um, okay. Uh, now, so for people who don't know about uh, these things, Hamilton, uh, just I'm sure everyone's aware, but it's it's a musical, a hip hop musical uh, about uh, the first treasury of the United States, treasurer of the United States, Alexander Hamilton, written by Lin Manuel Miranda. And the Jupiter Symphony is the 41st symphony. I think it's the 41st or the 40th symphony by I thought Mozart. it was the 40th. Is it the 40th? I thought so. Hold on, I'll just check. It's up there. Uh, fact check me, Bill. Um, and the, obviously... Oh, you're right. 41. 41. So obviously Miranda exists in the sort of pop, more popular thing. And Mozart definitely exists in kind of, you know, uh, more niche classical music. Um, you know, more people listen to Hamilton than they do Mozart. Um, and I think the two, the two works bear striking resemblance. But... The Jupiter Symphony just does it so, just does this thing so much more, and it kind of demonstrates my point about how, like in the avant-garde, there is just more of a thing, um, and that thing I oh, and feel free to jump in on me at any stage here, Bill. Um, but the thing I'm referring to is the use of uh, motif and counterpoint, right? So, oh God, there's so much to explain. Mo- motifs are like repeated things that happen. Um, uh, so if there's a series of notes or a phrase or whatever, if that keeps popping up everywhere, that, that's a motif. And a counterpoint is where you play 
different uh, musical ideas on top of each other at the one time and they still make sense. Um, I suppose a very simple example of counterpoint would be we all know Farah Jaka and how you can sing Farah Jaka and if uh, another voice comes in slightly delayed and begins singing Farah Jaka, it all connects and works. That's uh, one example of a type of counterpoint. Um, in the Jupiter Symphony, uh, there at the end of it, it's the most amazing thing ever. At the end of it, Mozart, throughout the whole bit, uh, Mozart has introduced us to five uh, motifs, five phrases uh, that seem unlinked, completely unlinked. Um, and he plays around with these for ages. And at the very end of the, th- uh, of the, the symphony, a piece I think called the Coda, uh, he layers these five melodies in invertible counterpoint. So these melodies can be flipped on one another and can be layered with any of the other melodies in any orientation and they still make sense. And they can even be skewed, as in one melody could start a little bit uh, sooner than the next melody and it would still work. So it's this amazing, amazingly constructed, dense layering of all the things that we've just been listened to presented in this like majestic sort of like oh my god it all comes together and fits um just like like storytelling threads just all weaving to a close at the end of a piece it's, it's amazing um so that's the Jupiter symphony right and i would argue that's a very abstract thing to do to be able to compose like this or to even think about composing like this um in in hamilton right uh miranda throughout the entire work in hamilton keeps presenting us with motifs um so uh, and obviously he's he's not mozart right so he's not thinking that instrumentally he's thinking in terms of like rapping because like that's what it is um and he presents phrases the entire throughout the piece um wait for it helpless satisfied um non uh, don't stop um rise up all these different phrases that keep coming back in various different contexts and and getting different meanings in different contexts contexts are used throughout the whole piece and at the end when spoilers hamilton is shot and dies uh just before he dies he in a sort of moment of like uh having his life flash before his eyes he quickly iterates all the different motifs we've been hearing in a sort of uh, almost incoherent ramble as he dies and we as the audience then kind of hear all the different meanings we've associated with those things uh, brought back at the very end so we can kind of get to like have a retrospective on Hamilton's life before he dies uh, and I think that's similar to the Jupiter Symphony in that it's you know sets up a whole load of things brings them back at the end but where where Miranda just strings them together one after another. And that's not a bad thing or anything, but just that's a choice. Uh, and limited by the story he has to tell, uh, admittedly. Uh, Mozart, on the other hand, takes all of these and then like layers them and intertwines them and morphs them and move and like flips them and does all these things. So that's kind of what I was saying the last time about how when you step outside of pop and film music, there's all of this cool stuff that, happens at pop and film music and theater that sort of thing but it just if my my perspective is and i'm so biased here uh, i appreciate that it just happens way way more uh, and to a way more abstract and almost subtle uh a subtle idea like you really need to be almost like a, a theorist to kind of appreciate 
the intensity of these things. So that's my theory. Uh, I'm going to leave, before I ask for responses there, Bill, uh, I'm going to leave show, links in the show notes to an analysis of the Mozart piece, which anyone can appreciate. If you can look, uh, if you can see and you can appreciate colors, you can appreciate this. So it's you don't no musical knowledge required. And I'm going to leave an analysis of uh, Hamilton's uh, use of motifs. Uh, they're long videos, buckle down, but I think they're thoroughly worth it. And I think they're fascinating, and everyone should go check them out. So that's my thesis: why I think Hamilton and Mozart are like uh, sim- like thematically linked, and why Mozart just goes that little bit more, and how that uh, hopefully elaborates my point from the last show. Any responses, Bill? You said at the end there. You have to be a theorist to appreciate it regarding the... Oh, no, no, you don't. Jupiter. You don't. No, you said as regarding the oh the, yeah. the symphony, not as regarding the video about the symphony. Yeah. That seems like a major disadvantage in, in, in it. Like, why, why would everyone do that? Why would that trickle down further into, into pop and into film music? if it required a specialised audience knowledge. Well, one might say if it, if it became more widespread, the audience would gain that knowledge and it would no longer be specialised. Um, but then I suppose that just put, kicks the bucket down the road. Uh, there will always be something that requires specialised knowledge. Yeah, sure, that's, that's, that's a valid, that's a valid counter-argument. Like, I mean, people... I, I don't know to what extent it was understood as such by a casual audience at the time. Um, and I don't know what the the public reach of, of the music was, um, whether it assumed an edu- a musically educated audience or not. Uh, I have... I have reasons to, to believe in both directions, so I'm not sure. Oh, but, interesting. Um... Music, like art that demands more of of its audience is always going to exist. And art that doesn't demand more of its audience is always going to exist. And art that requires less effort has a significant advantage. Less effort on the part of the of the audience has a significant advantage in many ways. Sure. So I I, I think it is in in I'm not even. I, I. I'm not saying that it is a problem. But if you're presenting it as a problem, it is an intractable problem because someone else is just going to make something easy, and that's going to be listened to more easily by people and have more success for that reason. Sure, um, sure. But uh, in the case of Hamilton here, like if if, if we take that Hamilton is ma- doing the easy version of Mozart, there, I think one can still do an easy version of a thing and a more easily understandable thing that kind of packs in the same uh, ideas so in in the case of Hamilton now again it's th- he's he's limited by the story he has to tell but assuming he wasn't he could do a Mozart where you take uh, a phrase and they say he could like specifically construct a phrase that's say palindromic right um like a, ver- a verbal phrase that's palindromic and he could maybe layer that above another phrase or very close to a phrase, and that could alter the meaning of things. So, and, and that would be more easily consumed by an audience because it's not abstract music; it's it's words, and we're better at words than we are with music. Um, so, I don't think easy 
necessarily means that all the stuff that's in Mozart can't be in it, if that makes sense. They'll be in it to a different degree, but they're still of the same species. Species, even. But, I mean, I don't see why, why what Hamilton is doing isn't of the same species, but just easier. Uh, yeah, but, like, there's a bigger gulf between the two, I think. <laughs> I've broken Bill. No, I was, I'm not really. I'm not really following. Because remember, the, 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 my thesis here is that I think there's loads of things that exist at in the more ab, abstract end of music that I kind of uh, really would like to exist more, um, more in pop and film and theater and that sort of thing. And everything I just said was me basically saying the beginnings of it exist in Hamilton, uh, but I always kind of feel like just a little bit more, you know, like close that gap a little bit. Because uh, there's so much cool stuff up there that if it could just be dragged down a little bit, um, or up there is bad, that's a bad way of phrasing it, sorry, it's over there, um, that if it can be uh, brought across a little bit and the gap between the two close, I think there's there's so much room for creative expression there. Yeah, but like, that's just making a very specific value judgment. And you could just as easily say there's so little room for improvisation in uh, in modern, say, performances of classical concertos. Sure. That why, do, why doesn't it take more of that from, from jazz or from, like, modern improvisatory musics? Yeah, sure. And I suppose the, my whole argument there is that it's based on my biases um, yeah. and my value judgment, for, for sure. And it's kind of an excuse for me to want to speak about Mozart and Hamilton because I really like them as well, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, that thing you said about improvisation in the concertos for people who don't know, and I'm sorry, this is real music, heavy music building, but apparently people liked it from the last time. So, um, there you go. Um, con- the concerto is a form, is, is a type of piece in in the classical paradigm um, that is usually a soloist playing with orchestral backing. And there's a, a specific form, usually, or at least in the sort of canonical sense, well, not canonical, uh, in the tr- traditional sense, there's a form these pieces take. And there's a thing in the middle called the cadenza, where the soloist ordin- like traditionally would show off their um, ability to, their mastery of the instrument by improvising um, this like lavish, almost like a guitar solo. Think of like a metal guitar solo, but in the middle of a classical piece. And over time, um, that people have just stopped doing that, like stopped improvising, and it's it's a people do written cadenzas, and it's kind of really abnormal for people to even write their own cadenzas and play them. They just kind of play the stock one, um, and I, I and I'm guilty of this too. I did this in 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 college. I played the cadenza that was written. I didn't write my own or improvise because I just can't. Um, and it's a shame that that's been lost um, as a practice, you know. Um, that would be cool if that was still there. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it would be cool if that if that was done more. I understand the reasons why why it stopped in that, but I think it's a it's a shame. Yeah, for sure. Um, and one last thing, just you mentioned the thing that I, I really want to just uh, address a little bit. You were like, you talked about like how uh, whether or not the audience at Mozart's time were kind of musically literate, or whether or not they understood all the things Mozart was doing, and whether or not he wrote assuming the audience 
do uh, do these things, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you assume this when you write music? Like when you do things, do you assume the people will hear them, or do you leave them in there as Easter eggs or for your own fulfillment? What's your sort of? Have you ever thought about that? What's your sort of jazz? Um, I think it's my job to make podcasts. To make podcasts. <laughs> um, I think it's my job as a composer to make the progression of the music sensible. That oh. they can... That the audience can... Like, wh- however... Whatever the material is, that the, the way the material progresses is coherent to them. And that doesn't mean that they have to consciously understand that yeah it doesn't have to be consciously understood um but that you know if there is a motif or if there is a melody or there's whatever whatever piece of material you want you want to name that the things that happen make some kind of logical or dramatic or another kind of sense to them consciously or, or otherwise um so, I I mean, like people people don't hear inversions. Like if you if you play a melody backwards and upside down, studies have shown that trained musicians recognize it less than half the time. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I don't think that's a useful tool in a lot of senses. If you're expecting people to 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 be oh isn't that clever he inverted the melody there because mm-hmm. uh, it's not going to happen but that kind of thing can work despite the the material the, or despite the approach if mm-hmm. if you know if you invert the melody and it it still sounds interesting or it is a logical or whatever progression from the material that came before then that works and it, the the fact that it is is an inversion isn't the important thing yeah that that's actually that's a really uh adult way of looking at it <laughs> that is a really solid answer bill i'm glad it <laughs> felt a little waffly as i gave it <laughs> no no it's not uh, your job is to make a coherent experience and if if there is extra added layers people can find them if they if they so if they have the ability to do so or if they want to um, mm-hmm. But it's your, it's not your job to be musical wine. Uh, I'll be yeah. uh and just dump all of these techniques on people and present a complete mess of a thing and be all like, "I'm great." What What do you mean you didn't like it? I'm great. I put all of these things in. Um, yeah, the the experience is what's actually important. Um, yeah, and that's that's why I'm obsessed with uh, with form. You are obsessed with form. I never understood it, man. <laughs> But do you understand it now? I, I do, but I would. I've, I. I certain the form was not a thing that uh, I. I lost it after, but I totally get it. If you're if you're on about presenting it to people in a in a in a clear way, form and the traditions yeah. of form is a really good good thing. And and that's uh, that's not to say that I think you have to be tied down to existing forms. Um, for anyone who, who's not familiar with the form being used that way, it's just the, the way the material changes over time, yeah. um, or the the order the order things happen in over time. Um, uh, like a form would be like verse chorus verse chorus that sort of thing. Exactly. Now, but like 
I, I think rhapsodic things where, you know, the material just keeps changing and doesn't ever repeat, that's equally valid as a form, but you just have to be, con- you have to consider, it's an important, the form is, is a thing that must be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that's that's what I mean. Unless you're Charlie Parker. I joke, uh, all the jazz people, don't, don't, don't at me, it's fine. You're... <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but like, I, I experienced that in film, as well and in in literature as well and particularly in comedy yes yeah yeah like i'm 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 all about comedy that is constructed over as an experience over time that's like when when a comedian does that well or when um like a, a piece of like comedy tv or something does that well that's that's like my absolute favorite thing in comedy yeah yeah that makes sense um yeah there you go. So that that's 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 my thing. Um, I apologize to everyone who wasn't interested in music talk about a music talk. Oh, oh, actually, there's one last thing I want to talk about. Uh, just when you were on about like inversions don't work. Mm-hmm. No, so, no, that they're not. Yeah, yeah, they're not heard. That they're not heard. Yes. Uh, do, do you know that Berg piece? Berg for anyone. He's a, he's a he's a German composer. I think he's German. He's a German composer. There's a piece he wrote for orchestra. That's a that's a palindrome. Like it inverts in on itself. Do you know this piece? One of the movements of the lyric suite does that, doesn't it? Maybe I I, I don't know. So if for anyone here, what it's happens? Is Berg writes a piece, uh, and it plays in one direction for like you know three minutes or whatever, and then mm-hmm. at a at a central point, it, it he just literally just reverses the notes. Like he just he hits time reverse on his on his like video editing timeline and everything just goes backwards so the whole piece is palindromic and it's it's bill made me think of that one it was kind of like no one can hear that ever like no one can listen for three minutes and then hear the reverse of that three minute part and go yes berg i know what you did there but it still makes for a if you like the music of berg a somewhat more a somewhat enjoyable experience uh even if you don't let that soak in but i think it's cool that that stuff is under the hood and you're like hmm nicely played sir I enjoy that. Um, yeah, it 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 works dis- like despite of the tools or regardless of the tool rather than because of the tool. Sure, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um where where some things like modulations and things work because of the tool, like that that there is a, a response that you have to that musical event. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that was that was my little thesis. Um Anything to add, or shall we move into the green room and hear about your adventures all around the world? <laughs> um, I want to add, because you mentioned Steven Universe at the start of this, yes. and how each character has their, their own instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I mentioned that the, the YouTube channel Sideways has a video about this. I think I said that in the last episode. Oh, if not, I will put in... Let me make a note of that. Sideways. I will put uh, in... Now, the, the, that I think it gets spoilery for a fair bit into the series, so just you know, if you haven't if you haven't watched that much Steven Universe and you care about spoilers, be aware of that. Um, but uh, someone in the subreddit, uh, sorry, yes, user the Basculus pointed out, and this is mildly spoilery for anyone who hasn't seen up to like season, I know three, I guess. Uh, am I good to go ahead, Edgar? I'm fine. I don't care about spoilers. Um, yeah. Uh, the diamonds don't have instruments uh, as their motif. They have specific chords as their motifs, uh, which is kind of interesting as well. 
And uh, it's interesting that they took a different kind of concept to represent the the leitmotif there, that it's not an instrument, that it's a, it's a chord, because the diamonds are more alien than that. So they have a whole different way of communicating their, their musical motif, which I, I know, I think that's kind of neat. And, you know, I actually will give that, like, serious props there for being neat because um a common thing that people will do and this is also in hamilton uh is that characters uh will have modes um so i'm i'm sure we're all aware of like major scale and minor scale um certain characters might only ever sing uh or be presented like or instrumentally presented as major and certain characters are minor minor uh, in Hamilton, uh, the, the Schuyler sisters, for anyone who's seen it, um, the optimistic sister always sings in major and the pessimistic sister always sings in minor, which is, uh, which that that's cool. That, that's brilliant. Uh, but the Steven Universe thing takes that idea and kind of makes it a little bit more interesting in that it's not a mode, it's a chord. And that's kind of, that's really cool, I think. Um, shall we crack in a green room? We shall. Um, but before I do, I want to just... just point out something really quick about the 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 map that i said earlier i actually <laughs> I, I did love, mention i love when I, you do that it's like oh wait by the way half an hour ago i said i, I just i just realized that i in fact did mention the place that is going to be relevant to the the meta plot so never mind oh what what is uh, this place um the lusal valley i think i briefly mentioned it the Lusal. why couldn't i see the lusal valley oh because it's the teeny tiny writing there that i didn't even i just thought that was mountains uh, okay, you went to Argentina and Brazil, yes? I went to Argentina and then I went to Brazil, uh, yes indeed. So I was uh, quite far west in Argentina. I was in the city of Mendoza. Mendoza? And around it, which is known as the one of the big wine producing regions of Argentina. Uh, particularly it's Malbecs, which are a very tasty red wine. Hmm. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a pretty cool place. We also, we did some trips from uh, Mendoza into the Andes, because it's right at the foothill oh. of the Andes. Oh, uh, that's so good. Like Santiago is only, in Chile, is only a, a, a two-hour flight away or something, um, or less possibly. You can, you can get a bus to Santiago, hmm. um, and it's not that long a bus. Uh, so we did some stuff in the Andes. We went whitewater rafting. Cool. Which was extremely fun. Um, and I went to the first camp on the highest mountain outside the Himalayas. Cool. What's the name of the mountain? The mountain is Aconcagua. Oh. And so you, so you went to ba- base camp, the base camp equivalent, but on Aconcagua. Yeah, it's called uh, Confluencia. Is the name of the camp, and it is three thousand three hundred meters above sea level. I think. Wow. Um, oh. Yeah, and we start. We started out at two thousand eight hundred or something, so it was a fair bit of a climb. Like, holy cow, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh. Uh, that was, and I had never done a hike before in my life. Uh, never hiked before. No. All right. Do you intend on hiking again after this experience? Or you're like, no, nah, man, I did it once. I'm done. No, it was the absolute bomb. I loved it. Really? Do you know what one of my dreams? I loved it. 
one of my dreams uh, to do, well, one of my obtainable dreams is to go hike up Karen Tuchel, the highest mountain in Ireland. Not exactly a huge yeah. feat to do because it's not that tall, but I want to do that. Uh, but my unattainable dream is to climb uh, Kilimanjaro. Cool. Um, that's just never going to happen. I don't see why not. Uh, money, money. Money and time. All right. Uh, if I had unlimited money uh, and more time, I would totally do it. But it costs like thousands to do, um, excluding flights and all this sort of jazz. Um, yeah. But that's man. That's great. If we're ever if we're ever in the nature together, we should go hiking together. I adore climbing up things. Yeah, for sure. For great sure. Crack. It was. Um, yeah. No. It was. It was really. It was. It was very tough, but it was very satisfying. Yeah. And um, I also sprained my ankle on the way down, which oh. didn't help. Um, man, I'm telling you, it's the way down that's always the problem. People are always like, oh, no, up. Down is where all the problems happen. I much preferred coming down despite having a sprained ankle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, I can, I can, uh, let me see. I, I wrote down the, the, a little bit about it. I, I, I kept a fairly detailed journal while I was there. Oh, you're so old school. Um, Anachronistic bill. Anyway, yeah, up Aconcagua, it was a three-hour or slightly over ascent, and it was a two-and-a-half-hour descent. Wow, that's intense. Yeah. That's um, intense. And, yeah, no, it was, it, was, it was so fulfilling to do. I'm really glad we did it. Mm. Also, uh, yeah, altitude is very much a factor. <laughs> yeah, no, t- of course it is, man. Altitude is, altitude is scary. <laughs> like... We st- we started hiking as I said we we went from the from kind of the entrance to the park which is like two thousand whatever two thousand eight hundred and we started hiking and about five minutes in we all said lads is anyone else destroyed yeah yeah because the the the, the difference in oxygen was shocking now I, I acclimatized pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, but just starting out was was horrific um, and when we when we got to the the, the camp. Uh, we stopped and we had lunch at the camp before heading back and we, we went on this like little hill where we could get a view of the peak and it was really lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were two guys there posing with the Wipala, you know, the Quecha flag. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I asked if I could get a photo with them because I, I think it's a really cool flag. Um, Deadly. That's class, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't know if, if what the, the appropriateness of, of someone doing that when they're they're not in any way uh, and indigenous to the Andes is, but the guys didn't seem to mind. So yeah, and hopefully it, it was, hopefully it wasn't an inappropriate thing to do or to ask. I, um, I would imagine, uh, not to speak from or anything, but I would imagine that if people take an interest in your culture, it'd be like, like, you know, you're not doing it like with bad spirits. You're kind of like, Oh my God, your flag is amazing. Like love this, you know, an interest in someone's culture, particularly one that isn't like talked about very much is, I think that's a cool thing. Yeah, and I tried to tell them in Spanish that I liked their flag, so... Uh, I can't even begin... I, I did Spanish for a little bit on Duolingo, but I can't even begin to form that. Me gusta tu bandera. Oh, me gusta... Yeah, yeah, that's fair, yeah. Um, cool, very cool, man. Um, so, that, yeah, that was really good. Um, I saw lots of animals while I was over there. Uh, I'll, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll be a bit more chronological. Um, after Mendoza, we went to Iguazu, which this was cool. It, it's um, on the border of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. No. Yeah, so there's a, there's a three way border there, and you can go to a point um, where 
so basically two rivers meet and it's like at a T and at, on the top of the T is is Paraguay and on either side of the kind of the, the bar or like the, the horizontal bar is Brazil and Argentina. Now it's not oriented that way like, to the north, but that's like the the topography of it. I um, see. It. And I'm, on fo- the, I'm following you on Google Maps here. Yeah, so you you can see where they meet. Um, on the Argentinian side, there's like a little kind of plaza thing and there's a little monument and you can get your photo taken with the three flags and um, there's like a viewpoint. And on the Brazilian side, there seemed to be a viewpoint, but it looks closed. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's like a little fairground thing, like a Ferris wheel and stuff. And on the Paraguayan side, there was nothing. Well, what are It the, was really weird. Do you know uh, what the interactions between those three countries are? Do they like each other? I don't know. I know, I, I, I think Paraguay has been historically fairly insular. Um, okay. And it, it like had a big war against all of its neighbours in the 1800s. Oh, um, like all of them, like literally everyone. <laughs> hey, Colombia, you're next. Well, it, it, went, it went to war. So yeah, the, the, the Paraguayan War, also known as the War of the Triple Alliance, or the Paraguayans know it as the Great War, was fought from 1864 to 1870 between Paraguay and, on the other side, Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. Wow. And Paraguay lost hard. <laughs> they lost hard. Uh, I'm assuming modern day, um, th- those those uh, feelings must have, you know, gone away. I pres- presumably, yeah, presumably they're they're fine now. Yeah. Just I, you know, that's the only that's the only point of reference I have for their their um, interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was there was like a ferry, like a, a jetty for a car ferry on the Paraguayan side, but there didn't seem to be anything to, to like mark that it was the triple frontier or that you could see the other countries. Mm-hmm. But it was pretty cool to be able to see to, to like two other countries. Um, and we didn't we didn't visit yeah. Paraguay, so it was cool to see it. Um, and anyway, in Iguazu, there's a massive waterfall, or like a system of waterfalls. So we did some hiking around there, um, looked at loads of waterfalls that were just stunning, like absolutely incredible. Um, you know the bit, you know the waterfall bit in Black Panther. Uh, yes. Oh, Bill. Yeah, there was a bit that there was a bit that looked kind of like that. Oh, which is very cool. Man, I thought this was going to be a whole heap of I went to loads of Argentinian museums, but Jesus, man, you're 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 making me fierce jealous now because you kind of sound like you had the holiday that I'd really enjoy as well. We we did go to two wineries when we were in Mendoza. Um, one that was like a currently active winery and one that was a historical one. A drinking museum. Well, we did do wine tastings in each of them, yeah. Did you, um, did you do all the sweaty, spitty stuff? We didn't do the spitty thing, but the, the you do you can do the swilly thing for red. It's not as relevant for white wine. Oh. And she explained the science behind it and stuff. It, now, is that science or is that hokum? Because it sounds, I, it sounds an awful lot like, almost like tarot card readings. Oh, like I'm picking up, when I swill this, I'm picking up hints hints of oak. And I'm like, no, you're not. It's made of grapes. It's fermented grapes. Like, that's what the ingredients are. We stop with your flowery language. It It makes sense to me. Now, I'm not, I'm not a wine taster, and I think that like at, at, there's there's a there's a point beyond which it's nonsense. Mm. But they do have different flavors; they do have different flavor profiles, mm. and it is people will acknowledge that it is somewhat subjective. Like, or at least this this lady was like, you know, it's everyone is going to have a different thing. Like when we, when we drank the white wine, uh, you, which where you don't need to do the swilly thing. 
everyone else was saying, um, oh, it tastes like apple or it tastes like uh, peaches or something. Whereas I thought it tasted like, you know, do you remember those pear drop sweets? Yes, they're great. Like, like, they're really, there's a really kind of like sharp kind of mm. high pitched flavor. The, that's kind of what I got from it. Um, but anyway, um, so that was, I think that was the only museum I did. Um, but the, Thank yeah, Christ. the waterfalls were great. The, there was a bird park, which was awesome. Uh, a bird park? Just a park full of birds. Full of birds. It's open air. This isn't under a glass dome or anything. These birds can leave and come back and all sorts of jazz. Uh, it's it's a kind of a conservation thing. So okay. some of them, like they have flamingos and stuff. They're kept in open air because they don't fly that much. Um, but there was other ones that were like big aviaries, big kind of wire aviaries. Cool. cool. Um, loads of parrots. Parrots are great. Um, I, I, I got so close to a toucan. Oh, um, really? That's cool. Yeah, it was absolutely gorgeous. It looked fake up close. It, it looked like it was wearing a Halloween costume almost. It was so... <laughs> it was so weird to see it in real life, um, and they had they had like turtles. Was it with, no? Sorry, they had tortoises and and like crocodiles and stuff as well. That was pretty cool. But loads of birds. That was great. Mm. Um, this is still in Argentina, yeah. No, sorry, that was across because we crossed over into Brazil. Oh, so you're and, now you're now uh, currently in Brazil. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so the the first day we were in Brazil. Um, like the first full day we had there, we, we crossed over, we, we stayed the night, and then we went to see the falls from the Brazilian side and went to the bird park. Right, okay, um, cool. There's a, a fun animal called a coati, which lives in that area, which oh, is like a that's... like a jungle raccoon. Um, that sounds familiar. And they will, like, I actually saw a coati steal sweets from a, from a small boy's hand. And they'll like they'll they'll try and like steal your bag or they'll like pick through your bag looking for food and stuff. So oh man, um, these chaps look hella cute. They're very cute. They're oh very, my very god, cute. look at oh my but god. There's there's signs up everywhere not to touch them and not to feed them and like someone's hand with a big gash on it and people were still petting them and feeding them and stuff. Oh um, no no, I I nearly got bitten by a monkey in Indonesia and that was feckin' terrifying. Like going near, oh, really? yeah, going near wild animals uh, is just not a good call. Now, I didn't intentionally go near it's said silly. monkey. It came near to me, but just being in the vicinity of wild animals, not good, not good at all. And particularly the ones that are kind of cool with humans, because they lull you into a false sense of security. You're like, this monkey's fine, or this coati's fine, but he's not. He's a disease-ridden wild animal. No good, no bueno. From a distance. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> then we went to Ila Grande. Which is in, which is all off the 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 coast of Brazil. Um, oh, you left mainland Brazil. Well, like it's it's just off the coast. It's a really popular destination, and there's no roads on Ilha Grande, so you have to either hike everywhere or get taxi boats. Oh. Um, and all there is to do there is hiking and beaches, and oh. it's class. Oh my god! T- turns cool. out I love going to the beach. You love the beach. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't expect to because I, I like I haven't gone to a beach or gone on kind of a beachy sort of holiday in a long time. I don't know if I've ever done it before. Um, and yeah, it's brilliant. It's like it's really warm, and you can just like chill out and read, and you can go swimming, and yeah, it's really good. I think. I think that the for me, anyways, I, I fully appreciate that you dig the beach. I, I don't particularly dig the beach because I think it's like. Uh, to get a bit uh, 18s plus here, I think it's like, you know when couples uh, are like, we'll let's scoodly poop in the shower. 
and it's this romantic notion and it's like but if you if that if you ever attempt that it's not romantic and it doesn't work and it's terrible i think it's the same thing with the beach where what? I, it, it sounds oh, hold on, sorry I, I, what i i missed the start of what you said there uh, uh the beach is like squiddly pooping in the showers uh because it 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 seems like it's a good idea and it looks like a good idea in films uh and like media and stuff but it's not if you actually go to do it like the beach for me anyways looks great but like sand gets everywhere if you put on you have to put on your socks and shoes afterwards and there's just sand in your socks and shoes um it's it's not not if you can just wear flip-flops everywhere like you can here yeah, yeah i suppose but you still have sand everywhere like like the, the star wars meme like sand it gets everywhere and that, I find that, I find that very uncomfortable. Uh, but I will take your point that if uh, when we were in Indonesia, I really enjoyed the beach because we sat just off the beach um, on one of our lazy days and just sat in a little bar place and ordered food and drinks and looked at the water. That was very nice. But being actually on mm-hmm. the beach and like walking around the beach and going for a swim, not my not my bag. Fair enough. Um, but there was a lot of hiking to do, and over the course of the of the thing, the whole holiday, I swam in three separate waterfalls, which is pretty sweet. Um, so we spent we spent the guts of a week there. Uh, I didn't do as much hiking as I hoped because my my ankle was still a bit sprained. No. Um, then we went to Perachi, which is a town further kind of south or west along the, the coast. And uh, stayed in the town for a little bit, and it was just coming to the start of Carnival. Um, cool. And that's quite fun, and there's all this old colonial architecture there. Uh, and then we sp- spent a few days outside that town, about 20 minutes outside, in an Airbnb in the rainforest, which was brilliant. <laughs> um, and then we went to Rio for about a week, and we were there for the last few days of Carnival. And what's, what's, what's Rio like? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really cool. Now, it's really, really big. Like, it's a massive, massive city. Um, we stayed in... Uh, oh, God, what was... Uh, Vidigal is the name of the place. Yeah, um, sure. Which is... It's... So, there's, there's the real famous beach, the, the Copacabana. Yes. I, and then that, there's kind of a, a sort of a right angle... And then the next beach, like if you go around that corner, is Ipanema, which is also really famous. As as per the song. As as per the song, okay. the girl from Ipanema, um, and who is seventy one years old now. Um, and then there's Leblanc, which is is the next like uh, district, the next beach down. And we were just beyond Leblanc. We were like ten minutes walk further down, but it's kind of you have to go around the base of that mountain or base of massive hill to get there. Mm-hmm. And um, I think where we stayed used to be or is kind of still a favela, technically. Um, and it's, like, currently being gentrified. And, yeah, they're, all, like, all built on hills. So you'd be in amazing shape if you had to live there. Because um, you just have to climb hills and climb stairs all the time. Uh, but, yeah, so we, we caught a, a parade of samba schools, which are, like, the the, the big parades you see. Um the first night we were there and then we went to some smaller kind of more local things on the second day which was the carnival day like it was mardi gras show tuesday whatever um and for the rest of the week we went to see christ the redeemer mm-hmm. um 
we had a recovery day. We had a couple of recovery days because uh, we'd been just like going at it really hard. Like the, we, the same day we traveled to Rio, we had to get up really early and then we stayed up really late, like looking at the parades. Mm. So we were awake for 21 hours straight after traveling, you know, after a month of traveling. So yeah, it was, um, that was pretty intense. So we needed to recover a bit. I got food poisoning one day, so I oh. had to uh, stay at home in bed. Um, but I stayed in and I watched uh, Fast and Furious 5 Rio Heist. So I felt while I was in, while I was in Rio, I should watch the best Fast and Furious film. Um, uh, come here to me, come here to me. Christ the Redeemer. What's Christ the Redeemer like? It's pretty cool. Um, it's very, very busy. Yeah. It was really, really packed. So it was kind of hard to, to take the time to actually take it in. And it was really warm. I mm. think it was 39 degrees Celsius the way we were there. Oh, gee, no, sorry. I just, made the, I just made my thing peak there. Sorry, I need to do that again. What? Yeah, it was, I think it was 39 degrees when we were up there. Certainly later on in the day when it was cooler... I was seeing like low and mid thirties. They they have like they have these animated billboards around on Ipanema and and Copacabana and stuff that give you the time and and the temperature. And like we're coming home late in the evening and it was like low to mid thirties. So I would well believe that when we were there at eleven in the morning or whenever we were that it was it was thirty nine. And it's it's very exposed, like it's up really high, and mm. there's no shade. Mm. So you know when it's hot outside, and you can't like lean against metal railings, or you can't like touch lamp like metal lampposts and stuff. Mm-hmm. That was happening on stone. You couldn't touch wow. the stone railings of the stairs Jeez, because man, they were too hot to touch. I think I think thirty nine. I don't think I've ever experienced anything close to thirty nine. Uh, I think the closest I got was thirty three. Uh, hang on, just for the Americans here. Um, just let me convert. Uh, 39 is 102 Fahrenheit. Uh, and then the highest temperature I've ever experienced is about 91 um, right. Fahrenheit. Um, uh, that's, that is mental. That is mental yeah. right there. I, I didn't feel it in terms of, oh God, it's really hot. I'm, I'm, I'm getting overheated. Um, because it, was, it wasn't that humid that mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Um, and because I'd gradually acclimatized to it, like it was warm when I got to Mendoza, it was in kind of mid twenties, mm-hmm. um, which is very warm for me coming from, well, like it's warm for me at any time. And I was coming from an Irish February. Yes. Um, so, and it, but it was quite arid there. It's, it's a dry area. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. as we, we moved north, it got more humid and, and more warm, but it was kind of a, a gradual acclimatization, but I got very tired. Mm. I, I, I got drained very quickly. Um, so that's that's how I experienced it. I uh, I, was, I had a similar thing in Korea. Like, uh, the member I was on a podcast as well. Where I was like, it's twenty eight degrees outside, and I'm dying. And everyone in the in the in the Reddit was like, that's ridiculous. Come on, twenty eight degrees. Which sorry, in Fahrenheit. Hold on, twenty eight in Fahrenheit. Uh, no, not twenty eight Fahrenheit in Celsius. God damn it. <clears throat> Hold on. Minus three. It's minus two, yeah. Uh, minus two, damn. CSC um, 84. So 84, I was saying that I was dying at 84. But in Korea, it's so humid that it's, it, mm. that 28 degrees is incredibly oppressive. And then when we went to Morocco, it was that 33 that I was mentioning, the odd 90s. And it was fine. Like, it was warm. Yeah. And, you know, you I wouldn't go for a run in that heat. But, like, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm going to die here. So the humidity is key in, in this. Um 
definitely. Um, but that's cool, man. Uh, anything else in, in Rio? Um, that was that was the majority of what we did. Like we we did the we did the the carnival stuff, which was a load of fun, and we spent time on the beach and drank caprinas, which are mostly tasty. But they can they can vary wildly in in quality. All right, um, like Guinness. Uh, yeah, but imagine it's like like a cocktail, so it's it's you know it's even more so. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're largely tasty. Um, and Brazilian food is great. Anyway, sorry, I'll, I'll finish the chrono- chronology first. Then we went to, we spent one night in Sao Paulo. We didn't really get to see Sao Paulo that much. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like we, we took a, took a bus there and then we got a taxi from the, the bus station to the hostel and like went out for one meal and then the next morning went to the airport. Right. Um, so we didn't, didn't get to see it that much. Uh, Sao Paulo is... And I didn't realize this. It's twice the size of Rio. Wow! Like I think I think Rio is something like. Actually, no. I'm, I'm going to get the figures wrong here, so I'm, I'm going to check this out. Mm-hmm. Um, how many people do you think are in Rio de Janeiro? Like eight, nine million. It's six million. Six million. Right? Okay. Okay. So, Sao Paulo is upwards of 12 million people. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. That is insane. It's so, so vast. And I would would have thought that, uh, that, oh oh no, it says here 14.7 million. Wow. Yeah. Um, It's huge. Um, I, I didn't get I didn't get to see much of it. I'd like to get the chance to see it properly. Uh, we met we met people from Sao Paulo who 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 said oh it's not it's not great to visit. But I'd like to I'd like to to if I ever go back to get more time there to give it a chance. Um, the yeah it was it's it was like an hour trip almost in in the taxi from the the bus station to the hostel. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably came down to closer to forty because he was able to use bus lanes and things. Um. And there was a, a storm started just as we arrived. So it was raining really, really heavily. And it was like you know, driving through this driving through this unfamiliar city. And we went we went through some like fairly rundown areas, but we could always see like cool skyscrapers and stuff. Mm. And there was lightning going on. And it was the most cyberpunk experience I've had in a long time. <laughs> I love that in a long time. Like I I have uh, I am known to have cyberpunk experiences. It just happened. There's been a uh, just, but just not recently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so yeah, I'd, 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 uh, yeah, it's it's great. It's they're two very cool countries. Um, if you like dogs, they're good places to go. Uh, lots of dogs in in Latin America, from what I see. A lot of them just kind of wandering around, chilling. Um, if if you don't like dogs, just be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Uh, everyone seemed really, really friendly. Um, we had a bit of Spanish among us. We didn't have any Portuguese. Mm. Uh, and it's funny, we were kind of worried about that. And then we went to Port- we went to Brazil and most people would have either a bit of Spanish or a bit of, of English. Yeah. Uh, and, but even when they didn't, Portuguese and Spanish, they're really funny to compare because 50% of the time they're almost identical. Hmm. And the other fifty percent of the time, they are alien. 
<laughs> it's it's and it's 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 really strange because like it it can be exactly the same right up until it's it's going off in a completely other direction. It's really funny. Hmm. Um and but like <clears throat> I picked up a little. I was able to follow certain things um from having like being in Spain. Uh, I I was picking up a bit of Spanish and like watching my friends use it. Um and then being in in Portugal or being in Brazil speaking Portuguese with people and seeing the comparisons and things. Um I did a boat trip while I was in Ilha Grande and I saw loads of fish. That was really fun. Um and there was a there was a small boy in the boat trip who got really excited and he went muito peca, which was like I I had followed along well enough to that point to figure out that he was saying so many fish. No. Um we had snorkeling. Snorkeling's great. Oh, very cool. Yeah, which I wasn't expecting to be that cool. Um I was like, oh, you know, cool. I'll get to look underwater, you know. That I guess it'll be kind of fun. Um, and I put it on, and I was we, we got one between us, and I was the first to, to use it, I think. And I put it on, and I, I looked down, and immediately I was I had been surrounded by fish, and I hadn't even realized. I was in the middle of a school of fish. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, Snorkeling sounds... I, I, one of those things that I I really hope I can learn to, to how to swim to do snorkeling. It's, it's amazing. Like, it's an incredible experience. God, uh, I don't know. What else? Oh, yeah, Brazilian food is is really good. Actually, South American food in general is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, every day I was in Brazil, I'm pretty sure I had fresh pineapple for breakfast. Oh, Every single day. Yeah. Um, and do you know what else Brazilians lo- like to have uh, at breakfast, as far as I can tell? Uh, no. Cake. Cake. Cake at breakfast. Wow, as in like so, sweet, sweet, like not a savory version of a cake, I guess. As in a sweet cake. Wow. The the, the, I don't agree the with that hostel I stayed in in Ilha Grande had amazing breakfasts, and it was like this big spread of you know loads of breads and um like scrambled eggs and huevos rancheros and various kinds of dips and things um and and fruit and the lady always made a couple of cakes as well. That's it was great. Well, I mean, I suppose people would have like a muffin for breakfast, like a coffee and yeah. a muffin, and a muffin's a cake. Or like toast and jam. I mean, that's a sweet thing to eat. So it's oh, well, not no, that I don't, far I don't away. Eat jam, so that doesn't come into my world. Um, but you know, but it is it is a breakfast thing. Yes, yeah, that's fair. Uh, that is entirely fair. And people put sugar in their teas and coffees for breakfast. That's also you know that is sweet. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's not. It's not as mad actually. That not that I think of, but uh, yeah. That, that's cool. So yeah, well, come here. We're we're at the two hour mark. So uh, any any closing thoughts or any final things, and then we should call we should call it there because uh, I will. Oh, I don't to... don't want to take over the whole green room. No, man. No, no, totally. No, we should totally take over the whole green room. But this is. I mean, like you're not going to Brazil every month, so we totally do it. Uh, we will. I have I have bank of artifacts and stuff to talk about. We'll talk about it next month because it's cool. A... I actually I I do as well. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, because uh, it's imperative that we keep this episode. Uh, relatively small because I'm going to Sweden on the 3rd and I need to get it done prior to that otherwise this episode is going to be like an additional week late and it's already yeah. late so we're, I'm going to I'm, I'm conscientious of time but that all being said it sounds absolutely amazing I'm so happy for you that you got to do all that and yeah it's great man yeah no I, I, had, an, I had an absolute blast it was it was superb cool Um, yeah should we call it there yeah let's leave it at that all right, and stop. Ed, Edgar out. <laughs>
Guys, guys, so Edgar has stopped recording, but I said Edgar out. And uh, now we're going to leave you with the song uh, Patron by Ex Ovo Omnia. See you next month. <laughs>